Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservants, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Father, as we come today to the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment, we ask that you would write your law on our hearts and put it in our minds. Help us to obey these commands that we have heard expounded. Help us to think like Christians and to walk like Christians and to talk like Christians. We praise you for the commands that you have given to us that explain to us how to live as those brought out of bondage to sin, brought out of Egypt. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to love your law and to meditate on it and to live by it. Help me to speak boldly and accurately about your law. Free us all from covetousness and envy this morning. Help us to be obedient to you, walking not in greed, but in contentment. Through the example of Jesus Christ, who in the opposite of envy gave his life for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. No one, said Groucho Marx, no one is completely unhappy at the failure of his best friend. No one is completely unhappy at the failure of his best friend. I don't usually start sermons with jokes, but what is Marx getting at with this comment? Simply the idea that envy is a human universal. All of us, if we look back, as this quote caused me to do, and say, hmm, we can see the envy resident in our own hearts, the sorrow at the good of others. Envy is one of the primary violations of the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet means thou shalt not Envy, thou shalt not be sorrowful at a good someone else has that thou dost not have. Thou shalt not covet. Covetousness, as we saw last time, is lawless desire. Wanting something you may not have, or wanting the right thing in the wrong way. It's wanting the wrong thing or wanting the right thing in the wrong way. So covetousness is exemplified, summed up in envy and greed. What we'll see today is that the cross of Christ is the ultimate negation of covetousness and envy. Really, it's the ultimate negation of every sin. And therefore, we have the power to say no to this sin of covetousness. To be completely and truly unhappy at the failure of our friends. The sin of lawless desire is the sin of covetousness. The sin of wanting the wrong thing. Something you may never have. Power to decide your own fate, independent of God. Uh, Power over life and death of other human beings, aside from due process of law. Power over the creation of life. uh, A la playing God, as we describe it. These things are desires that no human being is allowed to have. But in addition to wanting the wrong thing, which there are many wrong things to want, you can want the right thing in the wrong way. 
It's right for you to have food. It's right for you to have a spouse. It's right for you to have a reliable and cool-looking car. But it is wrong to insist on those things on your terms. It's wrong to say, God, I hate you for the position you put me in where I'm low on food, where I'm single, where I don't like the spouse I have, where my car's air conditioner quits all the time, where this goes wrong and that goes wrong. I'm angry. To want the right thing in the wrong way is the sin of covetousness. There's nothing wrong with money, but coveting money, love of money, is the root of all evil. There's nothing wrong with land, but Ahab coveted a particular vineyard, and that led him into all kinds of sin. So if there's any discontent, any resentment, any dislike of anything God told you to do, you are covetous. If you say, God wants me to live this way, think this way, talk this way, and that annoys me. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to obey God. The fifth commandment rubs me the wrong way because my parents are lice and I can't stand them. The eighth commandment rubs me the wrong way because people have been stealing from me since I was born and I have a right to help myself to their unlawful products or whatever it might be. For your heart to move against God's commands is the sin of covetousness. To want something that God told you you may not have. Now what's more human, more fallen human, than wanting what God told us we may not have? The commandment doesn't talk about fancy stuff. It simply talks about the everyday objects, the everyday wealth that is in your house and that is in your neighbor's house. It names seven objects of desire that you would locate in the neighbor's home. Number one, of course, is his house, or his wife, or his servants, manservant, maidservant, or his animals, his ox or his donkey. It sums it up with the seventh item, anything that is your neighbor's. The particular target of coveting is these seven things in the neighbor's home. Now you can look around and say, well, my neighbors don't own any donkeys. Therefore, this commandment is totally outdated. The commandment is not saying everyone wants a donkey. What is it saying? Everyone wants what his neighbor has. Your neighbor has the electric lawnmower, you want it. Your neighbor has the fancy car, you want it. And so on. Greed manifests itself in wanting what the neighbor has. There's, you know, greed can be signaled by a constant focus on money. We've all met these people. People who eat, breathe, sleep, drink, talk, money. Everything is about, well, one of these three things, spending, saving, or earning. Some of the money lovers are spenders. They always talk about what they're going to buy next, how they're how they're getting ready to purchase X or Y or Z. They love to talk about spending. And if spending dominates your thoughts, you're greeting. If you, spending is the thing you enjoy, spending is your favorite pleasure, you're greedy. But the same goes for the opposite, saving. If all you think about is socking money away, 
I'm going to put this away and that away and I can increase my savings from 12% of income to 15% of income by the end of the year and I can invest in this financial vehicle and that financial vehicle and buy this and buy that and my expected return on investment is... If that's who you are, if you're all about saving, then you're still all about money. You are greedy. Or even the people who say, well, I'm not about spending and saving. I just like to work. Give me hours. That's all I ask. Hours. Billable hours. That's a sign, more than likely, of greed. I want what I want what I want. Greed also manifests itself in get-rich-quick schemes. These all have something in common, which is the promise of massive return for minimal investment. Put in $100, get back a million dollars. If that sounds to you like it will work, you are in the grip of greed. Your thinking has been distorted by the love of money. This command forbids all of that stuff. You shall not covet massive return on investment, get-rich-quick schemes. And I include in this most multi-level marketing. Multi-level marketing is all about greed. (laughs) Because it promises you'll get rich off the work of others. You get people to market on your behalf, you get people in your downline, they sell, and then you get tolls on everything they sell. Because they're paying you For what? For the privilege of being in your downline. It is greed, pure and simple. So, greed, obviously, is forbidden by this commandment. The Harvard Business School did a study recently looking for excessive greed in chief executives. And for purposes of the study, they defined greed or excessive materialism in an objective way as Owning a house that costs more than twice as much as the median home in your area. I looked it up this morning. In August 2022, the median home in Gillette was $276,000. So if you own a home that costs more than twice that, Harvard calls you greedy. Or owning a car that costs more than $75,000. Objectively a sign of greed. Now this was in... 2013 or something when the study was done. And then finally, owning a boat longer than 25 feet. If you have any of these, they said, you are objectively greedy. You are in the grip of excessive materialism. Right? So if your house, what? There's legalists out there, 276 doubled. If I get a house that's only 525,000 and I get the 24-foot boat and I get the $74,000 car, not greedy. Right. Wrong. This commandment tells us don't want, don't live for stuff. And it specifically focuses on the stuff that is the neighbor's stuff. Neighbor appears three times in this commandment, once in the previous commandment, not at all in the other eight commandments. 75% of the commandments' references to the neighbor come in the 10th commandment because. Greed is triggered by seeing what the neighbor has. The fancy term for this is mimetic desire. Mimesis just means imitation. You can hear that mim sound in imitation. It's the same sound as in mimetic. I see what you're doing and I want to do it. Monkey see, monkey do. Shiny, monkey want, 
that is unfortunately not just true of the Simeons, it's true of the humans too. Which is why God mentions the neighbor and mentions seven things in the neighbor's house and says, you are going to, in your fallenness, covet these things. And I'm telling you right now, stop coveting these things. Mimetic desire explains why people can hate you just for being successful, just for getting a promotion at work, just for having the happy, loving family and children that they don't have, just for driving a better car than they do, or anything along those lines. Envy is sorrow at another's good. Right? Or, the flip side, as Groucho Marx pointed out, joy at another's failure. That is envy. And that is a sin against the Tenth Commandment. Wanting what the neighbor has, being sorry that he has it and you don't. I hate my neighbor because he has a swimming pool. I hate my neighbor because he has this and I want it and I don't have it. That is the definition of envy. I think more common among us, though, than sorrowing at the neighbor's good is discontent with our own good. I have this and I don't like it. I don't resent the neighbor for his big house, but man, I hate my tiny house. I am so tired of being unable to turn around in the kitchen with my arms outstretched. Or, right, I wish my car was 10 years newer because I just hate driving this piece of junk. Or, I wish my house was painted better. I wish my kids were prettier or smarter. I wish that I was a different race because those other people have it better. Or, People get hung up on all of these things and that too is covetousness. Not being content with what you have. You could be a billionaire living in a trailer park and covet what your neighbors have. Not necessarily the single wides, but the family togetherness, the joy, the camaraderie. Right? If you see anything you don't have, it doesn't matter what it is or anything that someone else has that's better than what you have, covetousness rears its ugly head. This commandment tells us, walk in contentment. And we talked about that last week. How to do that. Be with Jesus. Learn that He is enough. Stop looking at the neighbor and saying, I want. I want. And start looking at Jesus and saying, I have. I have. Well, the covenant, the covenant, the commandment addresses individual coveting. But it also addresses group coveting or group envy. And this too is a powerful force in the modern world. We say that we live in an individualistic society. That's true. But we also live in a society where the power of the group is respected, channeled, and appealed to all the time. What am I talking about? Well, individual covetousness and envy are powerful forces. But group covetousness and envy are nearly omnipotent. You can imagine a mother aggrieved that her child was passed over for something. Right? We've all seen that. And that's a powerful force. Now get a critical mass of such people. 
People whose lives are dominated by envy and covetousness, and that mass is sufficient to burn down the existing system and start over. That is the whole point of Karl Marx's 1848 Communist Manifesto. That is the idea of Orthodox Marxism, that you're discontent not only on behalf of yourself, but on behalf of your family, your clan, your class. And your envy and your covetousness can boil over along with other members of your class and destroy society, remaking it into what Marx would say is something far better. So Marx described this originally in terms of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, to use two French words, the working class and the upper class. The bourgeois upper class own the means of production. The working class proletariat should resent and hate the upper class. The working class should get together, overthrow the upper class, take their stuff, nationalize the means of production, and this will result in a better, freer, fairer world for everyone where you can hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, draw in the evening. Marx said, life will be great under communism because we have taken envy and we have channeled it into destroying the neighbor who has more than us. Now the problem with this is that covetousness is an internal problem. You can't solve covetousness and envy simply by taking from the neighbor. If you, unleave, you stir up a bunch of envious, covetous people and unleash them to mount a revolution and take everything, you don't end with a bunch of content, happy people. You still have envious, covetous, angry people. Equality does not make people happy. Only contentment can do that. Equality does not satisfy us. Well, I live in a cruddy apartment and drive a cruddy car, but so do all my neighbors. So therefore, I am content. Right. Said no human being ever. That's the problem with Marxism. An ideology powered by mimetic desire and envy is an ideology of unhappiness and dissatisfaction. So not only that, it's deeply, irretrievably sinful because it is directly contrary to the Tenth Commandment. It is all about coveting your neighbor's house, his ox, his donkey, his manservant, maidservant, what we could collectively term the means of production. God says don't want those things and don't kill your neighbor to get those things. Discontent with your class is good is orthodox Marxism. It is not Orthodox Christianity. Far, far from it. Well, white privilege, this is a twist introduced on the original class-based Marxism. And, oh, what, around the 1930s, 1940s, Marxist thinkers realized that class isn't everything. People don't just envy their neighbor's stuff and want the means of production. People also envy their neighbor's Social goods, social status. And so they came up with this idea of saying in the United States, black people are poorly off, white people are well off, black people are the new proletariat, white people are the new bourgeoisie. Let's go ahead and, again, stir up envy and covetousness and overthrow society in the name of equality, created by 
destroying the neighbor who has the thing that makes us covet. And so the whole concept of white privilege, the whole concept of any of this race-based class or social racial warfare is all essentially a Marxist propaganda invention designed just like the original proletariat bourgeoisie dynamic to overthrow society, allegedly in the name of creating equality, actually in the name of putting Marxists in charge. So the concept of white privilege is not a genuine plea for social change that will uplift black Americans. Only a fool would think that a communist talking point was created in good faith to help an oppressed class. The proletariat are not better off in communist countries. Black people are not better off in communist countries. So, white privilege is a weapon used that uses the sin of covetousness to bludgeon existing society to death, just like the original class-based Marxism. So how does that apply to us? Right, We're not a bunch of envious Marxists in here, Lord willing. So why do I talk about it? Well, for one thing, so that we can understand that statements about how poorly off black people are are not primarily about loving your neighbor in the Christian sense. Loving your neighbor means keeping all ten of these commandments. Any ideology that's about envying and coveting what your neighbor has is not and can never be a form of loving your neighbor. You don't love your black neighbor by saying, I need to check my white privilege. By adopting anything that's rooted in envy and covetousness, anything that's rooted in the Marxist weaponization of envy and covetousness, you're not loving your neighbor. You're hating your neighbor because you are violating the Ten Commandments. As we saw, you can't keep any of these by violating the rest. Uh, You can't show honor to others, right? The fifth commandment by saying, I envy you. Or conversely, you should envy me. Or I'm distressed about the good that I have. My white privilege is something I sorrow for. No, we just talked about that. That's called discontent with your own good. That is a form of violation of the 10th commandment. If you are privileged, whether with white privilege or the other two forms of privilege I'm about to talk about, an unbroken family or saving your life when others around you died, that's not something to sorrow over or regret or hate. That is something that you need to thank God for and say, I will use what I have to love my neighbor and honor all men. I will use what I have to keep the Ten Commandments, which is how God says to love my neighbor. In other words, when Karl Marx says, here's how to love your neighbor, burn down his house and take his means of production, you say, no, that does not love my neighbor. Sorry, Marx. When Marx says, here's how to love your neighbor, believe that black people are underprivileged and that you as a white person are the oppressor. Again, recognize the fingerprints of envy and covetousness all over that doctrine and say, no, that is not how 
I love my neighbor. You love your neighbor by being content with what you have, not by coveting what others have, or by encouraging others to covet what you have. If you're white, you shouldn't wish to be black. If you're black, you shouldn't wish to be white. If you're male, you shouldn't wish to be female. If you're female, you shouldn't wish to be male. If you're rich, you shouldn't wish to be poor. If you're poor, you shouldn't wish to be rich. Right. What is this? You are where you are. God has placed you there and you should seek contentment there. Rather than expending all your energy, effort, and time on discontent, envy, and outrage. So what are two other forms of privilege? Well, there's an unbroken family to say, my parents split up, my family is terrible, nobody loves me, nobody understands me, nobody in my family walks with God, they're all evil, rotten scumballs. That could be true. Or you might say the opposite. I have the best family, my family is loving and whole and kind and godly and amazing. Either way, the Tenth Commandment addresses you and says, be content with what you have. Don't covet your neighbor's family. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, right? It literally says that. Or his mom, or his dad, or his kids. Because coveting a different family is a sin. God gave you the family that he wanted you to have. He put you there for a reason. And therefore, in that context, you are to learn contentment with Christ. That Jesus is enough. When my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in, David says. That has to be true of all of us. That is what the commandment requires. Not coveting a different family or, right, not being discontent with your own good. Oh, my family is so good. I just feel so bad for all the people out there who don't have that. Well, love those people, but don't reject the good God has given you in the name of suffering and solidarity with people who don't have that particular good. That is not the Christian way. So, finally, survivor's guilt. You're on a vessel that runs into a mine and sinks. And the buddy next to you dies. You live. You go through life saying, why am I here? Why did I survive? And you end up being sad, upset, even angry. Because you can't handle the reality that you're alive and your buddy is dead. Thy will be done is the opposite of covetousness. Contentment, even with God's gift of life when you recognize how contingent that is. Still something that you and I need to embrace. Don't walk in survivor's guilt or family guilt or white guilt or bourgeois guilt. The Word of God says, God put you where you are. Love your neighbor there, but don't be discontent with that or regret that. One final point about the neighbor. When you recognize that covetousness and the existence of the neighbor are deeply intertwined, as they are, you want to blame the neighbor. And Marxism is just one elaborate exercise in doing that. 
My sin is the neighbor's fault. Right? Psychoanalysis. My problems are my mother's fault. Or you name it, we like to find a scapegoat. And whether it's in an elaborately worked out theory like Marxism or psychoanalysis, or just in our default, everyday intuition, we like to think that a problem must have a problem causer. It's a particular group. It's a particular individual. It's a politician. It's a bureaucrat. It's somebody of this ethnic group or that ethnic group. It's our enemies over there. Right? The Russians, the Chinese, these people or those people. We want to find a scapegoat. My greed is my neighbor's fault. If he hadn't bought the lawnmower, I never would have coveted it. We feel this desire for a scapegoat. We want to blame somebody. It started at the beginning. The woman you gave me. The serpent. He fooled me. We want that scapegoat. And the incredible gospel message is that Jesus volunteered for the position. That instead of saying, you're all at fault, deal with it, you will be punished, don't tell me it's somebody else's fault, Jesus said, I will take the blame. I will be the scapegoat. You can all blame me. And I will accept the penalty for everything you've done wrong. Jesus signed up for the scapegoat job. It wasn't his fault, but he took the blame. And that, my friends, is the opposite of envy. Envy is sorrow at another's good. Jesus cures envy by, instead of sorrowing at another's good, he lets us benefit from another's good. Instead of being sorry that Jesus is the hero of the cosmos, the king of the universe, the beloved of the Father, the most privileged of all privileged beings, we learn to rejoice that all those things are his because they are ours too in him. We benefit from another's good. So rather than being sorry that Jesus is so good, rather than envying him because he's so good, we love that he's so good because in his goodness he shares that goodness. Right? Rather than being the neighbor who says, my stuff is mine, he's the neighbor who says, my stuff is yours. Who invites us to dwell in his house forever. How did that happen? Because Jesus took our evil on himself including our envy and covetousness, our greed, our homes that cost twice the median home price, and all the rest of us. If you were brought out of the land of Egypt today, then you have the greatest of all privileges to be united to Jesus Christ as your head and husband. You benefit from another's good. His good is yours already today. So moderate and mitigate your desires. You don't need what your neighbor has. You have Jesus. And in Him, you have everything. That's why the commandments begin with God. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out. And they end with the neighbor. Because when things have been set right between you and God, things are set right between you and neighbor. 
Because of what God did in delivering us from Egypt, we can love our neighbor and not be envious against him. Jesus has saved you. Keep his commandments. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that your son did the opposite of envy. He wasn't discontent with his own good, nor was he sorrowful about our good. Instead, he came and shared his good with us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. That envy would be dead, killed by the light, the radiance of his presence and his generosity. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have everything. And that therefore we have no need of envy, of covetousness, of casting our eyes on what the neighbor has. Because you have provided for us abundantly every good thing to enjoy. Sink these troops, truths deep in our soul, we pray, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen.